Good morning. We are thankful that you are here, and it is a blessing that we can be together, that we can fellowship, as has already been said, not only in our worship to God, but as we shared a few moments together, try to encourage ourselves. We're just thankful that you choose to come to be with us, especially as well to those who are online who aren't feeling maybe comfortable enough to be out yet. We hope that you can be back with us again soon. We want everyone to be here. We want these pews to be as filled as we can for right now, and hopefully in the near future there will be a time when we can get back to normal as we think about it from not too long ago. Hard to believe we're coming up on a year where our lives have been disrupt, disrupted in the way that they were, uh, but we're thankful for the opportunity that affords us to be here even together this morning. Last week we began a, a series of lessons. I thought it would be encouraging for us, it's encouraging for me as it always is as we study and prepare, to think about the family, and to think about the home. Uh, my dear, sweet, better half reminded me that I was supposed to give a disclaimer last week before I began talking about the home and got it here somewhere. Let's see. Oh, here it is. Disclaimer. We are not perfect. We do not have it all figured out. The advice you are about to receive in no way reflects the way our home is always run and said statement absolves the opportunity for future litigation based upon such advice as will be given. That cup. Now that we're square, and in the age of hey, everything's online for the future, so you got to be careful, right? You got to watch, watch what you say. But it's hard to believe many moons ago we would never have thought that marriage or even family would be such a controversial topic or subject, even in the world that we live in, even in these great United States that we live in. But it certainly is. It's not that problems are not new among families. No, it's, it's not that problems are new because as we mentioned last week briefly in our lesson, we go all the way back from Adam through Abraham and, and even forward even to this day. And there are problems, there are issues in the family. So no, we don't think about that. We don't, we don't never thought that maybe marriage would be such a topic that would need to be discussed. But you know, marriage can be tough. So tough that you can find, you know, just about any book that you want to try to help you with all of your marriage problems. So, you know, it's with that in mind, in case you have any questions, I thought I would bring a few of the books that I have that, you know, that I keep in my library that kind of help if you had any problems in marriage. You could always come and you could pick up one of these books and they might help you as you go along. So you can, I mean, you can find anything that you want. Got go to this side if you need any of those, or got some of these if you want any of those. You can find anything you want. In fact, the best find was if you still have a VHS player. These are in our library. You, if you've got to take kids, we'll talk about this later. Okay, what this is, you can. We'll show you what these are. But some of you remember the Burkine Marriage Seminar. You can have those. I've even got one for kids. We've studied this in our family. It's a great one that you can look at to, to think about. We've got it all covered. I've got 10 lessons to transform your marriage, seven ways, principles to make your marriage stronger. Uh, we got husbands, we got wives, five love languages, any number you want to pick. We can help you cover what you might need to think about your marriage. Marriage can be tough, and we can use a whole lot of books to try to help us understand what it takes to make a marriage good. But what if? What if we could do away with all of these? I won't knock them all in the floor. But what if we could do away with all of these and we could simply find one? One book that would give us all that we need to know to help us in our families and to help us in our marriages. 
You see, we quote it quite often from time to time. From 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Peter says that as His divine power has given us, as God through His power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do we mean that when we read it? Do we think about that when we read that passage? Because if we do, a lot of these things are going to be okay. They're going to help us. They're going to encourage us. But there's one place that we need to go when we think about what marriage really is. And so it is this morning as we go through this lesson, unfortunately, as is obviously the case, we're not going to cover everything there is to know about marriage. But we can learn maybe just five principles from the Word of God as we consider what it means to have a good marriage or to be married, what God's ideal is for marriage. Number one, I didn't number them on your outline, I don't believe, but, but number one, of the first lesson we can learn is that marriage has a designer, and it is, of course, God. Not Oprah, not the Pope, not the government, not the schools, not anybody in between, and certainly not me and you, not the Supreme Court, not anyone in between has defined or given us what marriage is but God Himself. And He's a great designer, right? When you think about the world around us, the cosmos, the earth, you know, a, a millimeter or whatever it is closer to the sun or further away and we're in trouble of, of burning up or freezing to death, the way the world spins, the way that everything works in perfect balance, He's a great designer. You think about the church, elders, a plurality of elders who work together with deacons who serve as servants, with members who work together. God designed the church, and it works pretty good. He's a great designer. God designed marriage. And when we try to define it our way, we will always fall short. And it's not just us, but it's the world. When the world takes what they want, when we decide what we think is best, and we try to redesign what God has already designed, we're going to have a problem on our hands. As we said last week, it is the oldest institution. It is the oldest man-made or divinely ordained institution. Not man-made, but divinely ordained. As we think about the church, and we talked about the government, and we talk about marriage. I'm convinced that God loves marriage. He designed it. Just like anything that you create. Sometimes it's a little frustrating, or maybe it doesn't work just right, but oftentimes we make something, we step back and we say, I'm proud of that. I designed it to work that way. I'm proud of that. I love the work that has been done. And as you open your Bible, as you open the pages of your Bible to the actual text, it is the first thing. I mean, we've got to have creation, right? We'll just say that. We've got to have creation. God had to create the world. He had to create man and woman. But after that, it is the first thing. That we read about. Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. God performed the first wedding ceremony. And for those of you who have been involved with one, maybe of course even as yourself, or even if you've been involved with your children and their marriage ceremony, it's wonderful as we think about that. It's oftentimes a great day of celebration. God performed the first wedding ceremony. He saw all that He had created and it was good. And He performs that first ceremony. We think about Matthew chapter 19. We're going to go there several times. If you're making notes, you can write it down and we'll keep referencing back to it. But Matthew chapter 19 and verse number 6. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. 
You know, I've had the opportunity to do a few wedding ceremonies. It is one of my favorite things to be a part of, typically. That's because usually I have the easiest job. Everyone else looks a little afraid and crazy when it's going on. I said, you know, oftentimes you practice and you practice. You make sure everybody knows what to do. Then nobody knows what they're supposed to do, and everybody laughs, and they're still married at the end. So I enjoy them. I love it, getting to do a marriage ceremony. But it's not just me. The power is not in me, although I usually will say, and the power vested in me by the state to allow this marriage ceremony to be signed with an agreement, but it's God. What God hath joined together, let not man separate. I know that God loves marriage because He designed it. And He designed it in such a perfect way. Which leads us to our next point. Marriage also has a definition. When we think about marriage's definition, Genesis chapter 2, again, verses 23 and 24, that a man be joined to his wife. But wait a minute, where do that man and wife come from? Well, they come from their father and their mother, as Matthew mentions. And so when we think about the definition of marriage, it is one man and one woman. Why is it that way? Because that's the way the designer created it to work. Once again, for the sake of time today, we won't have a chance to go through all the arguments. We won't have a chance to talk about all the politics. And who would have thought that one day that we would be having this discussion? And some of us say, well, one day a man maybe tried to marry his dog. And people say, well, that would never happen. But when we step one step away from what the designer designed, what's to stop someone from stepping another step away and another step away? We continue to leave God's design for lots of things. And certainly one of those is marriage. And by definition, it is one man and one woman. We think about Matthew 19, 3 and 4, where Jesus is talking about that. And he quotes and talks about Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 27. When Jesus is talking about marriage, he talks about that they were made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 27, male and female created he them. Romans chapter 7, as you're jotting down notes, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7 are two places where Paul is going to discuss marriage. And in both places, he uses words like a man and a woman or a husband and a wife. And isn't it interesting? It's also interesting. Did you know that it is believed by studies that the ratio of males to females is basically a dead heat? I mean, within a percentage point of each other. In 2017, it was believed that females made up 50.5% of the world's population, or at least in the United States, I think that might have been. So no matter what, you know, we don't get to choose. Our kids kept trying to ask us that, you know, if we wanted to have another one or when we did have another one, we, we get to choose whether it's a boy or girl. No, we don't choose. We don't get to choose. And yet, through all of that, there's still basically a dead heat between men and women, male and female. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we think about us here. You know, the Danleys kind of throw things off. We've got three boys and a girl, but then we have the Lawrences who have three girls and a boy. We think about the Friedels and the Dixons kind of messing things up with a bunch of girls, but we also have the Edge boys, and we've got Mitty and her two boys. And so we think about when it all boils down, God continues to create an even number of male and female. Now, I know what the government may say, and I know what society says. I know what people want to identify as. But when it comes to the way that God designed marriage and He designed the world around us, we think we're in charge of things. 
And that we can define things however we want. But if it matters what God says in His Word, and it does, then marriage is defined to be one man and one woman. And so by extension, that means that the marriage bed is to be undefiled. We think about Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 4. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. We'll set the man and woman aside for a minute. One and one. Not one and one and one. Or more ones. Because that's the way the world wants to treat things. It just complicates things. It just, it just messes things up. That's not the way that God designed marriage to be. And God, God says don't do it because He knows. He knows what happens when we try to add one more to what's supposed to be one man and one woman. It just messes things up. It doesn't work. He knows that one man and one woman is sometimes enough for us to try to handle and to be on the same plane. It's not meant to be one and one and one. It means that God hates divorce, which is our next point. Number three, marriage also has a duration. You may have heard it said this way before. God's ideal for marriage is one man and one woman for one life or one lifetime. And so we know Romans chapter 7. We referenced it just a few moments ago. Romans chapter 7. Paul is making a point in Romans chapter 7 about the law, the law of Moses. He's making the point that Jewish Christians were free to be married to another to go from the old law, speaking of the law, not just marriage here, but to go from the old law to the new covenant, which is Christianity. Why were they allowed to go from the old law to the new covenant? Except for by death. And in the case of the law and the new covenant, it was the death of Christ. And so Paul is drawing this parallel here for these people and for us today to make the point that when death occurs, there is a severing of that unity. And with the death of Christ came the new covenant. The law has a claim on people only while they are living. So Paul offers up this illustration. A woman is bound to her husband only while he is alive. So we all understand that concept and we agree. We are very saddened when that takes place in this life, especially when it takes place at a young age. But death severs that bond. Because of the death, there is a change. And so we understand marriage has a duration. We say that a lot of times in our vows. One man and one woman for one life until death do us part. But we also know as well, Matthew chapter 19. You may have heard it said this way. God's ideal for marriage is one man and one woman for one lifetime with one exception. And look, I, I know, I got the books to prove it. Marriage is not for the faint of heart, all right? We, we understand that. It's tough. It's hard. Sometimes we mess up. Marriage can be messy. And it can become he said, she said between two people. This lesson is not intended to be focused on divorce. That'll have to be another lesson for another time. As I said, we know marriage can be hard and it can be difficult. We know that from time to time that you marry a person and then you turn around and they're not the same person at all. You, you never imagined. I know sometimes where somebody, people look at a couple and they say, well, we could have told you that was coming. You know, he, he wasn't the best guy or whatever. But I know of other situations as well where without a doubt you look at two strong Christians and within a few years one of them has changed their mind, left the faith completely, and it's just a sticky situation. And as always, if you have questions or issues, we can talk. My door is always open. My phone is always available. We can talk and try to, to 
go over the situation and things that happen. But no matter the situation people sometimes end up in, there is no changing what God has said. The duration of marriage is meant to be one man and one woman for one life, for one lifetime. And we think about death sometimes separating it. And there is an exception from time to time where there is adultery and there is a problem in that regards. It doesn't say that it's a free ticket just because it happens, that you can't work through it. But again, we don't have time to get into every situation this morning. But understand that God's ideal for marriage, what the Bible has to say about marriage, marriage does have a duration as well. And it is, as we said there, for one lifetime. Marriage also has, I believe in the fourth place, delight. As I said it before, I'm convinced that God loves marriage. God loves marriage, He designed it, and He has given us all we need, as the first slide said, to live happily ever after. No, Disney does not have the corner on that market. Because I believe that God intended for us as Christians, as humans, to be joined in marriage. It's not a requirement, by the way, I don't know if we've said that yet. It's not a requirement. But if you are, that you can then live, in a sense, happily ever after. Think of all the verses we've read already. Think of everything we've mentioned from Genesis to Matthew and everywhere in between. God has designed for marriage to be something that is enjoyable. Think of the specialness of that day. Maybe your day varied. Once again, we can't help all the situations. I think about my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. They put forth more effort than just about anybody you can imagine to have an outside wedding. And you know what's coming next, right? As I rode in the back of a truck with a bunch of flowers trying to get them in the church building while the rain came tumbling down. That's what happens from time to time. But you know what? There's still a specialness to that day. Because I believe that even from that day forward, God intends for marriage to be something that is a delight. God has created something good. Do you remember Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 18? What did God say is not good? Genesis 2, 18. It is not good that man should be alone. Adam is looking around and we kind of picture in our minds in a humorous way that all the animals are coming by and he's naming them and he looks at the cow go by and he watches the giraffe go by and he thinks, well, that might make a good partner. No, I don't think so. They could reach the top shelf unlike some partners, you know. But no, that, that's not good. There's maybe a dog. That's no good. None of these things are any good. But it is not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a person who is compatible, a person who is suitable, the version you're looking at may say, or as I like the word, help meet. And so we think about it. When we think about marriage and a male and a female, and we think about it being a delight, I'm here to tell you, as are all of these authors who have spent so much time in these great books, that that delight, though, is not always immediate and it's not always present in marriage. When we think about it, it can be a struggle. Whether you've been married one year or 15 years or 45 years, it's not always immediate. It's not always present. But I don't think that's the way God designed for it to be. There's not a whole lot of passages. I think about Genesis 2.18 we mentioned a moment ago. I think about Acts chapter 18. Do you remember there that we meet Aquila and Priscilla? A husband and a wife who are working in tandem, doing good things. I think there's just a brief picture there. There are others we probably could have referenced to remind us about men and women who are married, who, who care for one another, who are helping one another. But Aquila and Priscilla are working together. Wayne Jackson, in, in his commentary on the New Testament, 
made this statement in regards to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9. He says, God's marriage law is for the benefit of the home and the welfare of society. And then what we said last week, it's at the very foundation. It's at the very foundational principle of society. And when we look around us and we see the home and the family and marriage failing, we can blame the government. We can blame the other party. We can blame everyone else. But it begins when we have allowed the world to change marriage and the family and the home. Because God designed it. God designed it perfectly. God designed it a certain way. And I believe that God designed it to be a delight. Wayne Jackson said, God's marriage law is for the benefit of the home and the welfare of society. The integrity of domestic relationships facilitates the success of the gospel of Christ. You see, when we think about marriage being a delight, I can tell you that I believe God designed it to be that way because of that very statement. The integrity of marriage facilitates the success of the gospel of Christ. Which leads us to our last point this morning. That marriage is also a demonstration. And if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Because God designed marriage to be a demonstration. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22, and going through the end of the chapter, as Paul is talking about the church to Christians, he also talks about the fact that marriage is a demonstration. But here's the thing. It's not just any demonstration. It's because of marriage that we learn about Christ and sacrifice. Listen to the requirements of wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Do I have to? That doesn't sound like something I want to do. But does that mean I got to go all the way or I got to go part of the way? What are you telling me to do, Paul? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now we get a much clearer picture. You can't open the pages of your Bible and read and misunderstand what it means to be faithful and in submission to the Lord. Wives, that's how you're supposed to be in submission. But of course, it doesn't stop there. In fact, I would say, and not just because I am the husband, of course, but I would say he takes it a step further when then he talks to the husbands who are to be the head of the home and listen to the requirements of men. Husbands, love your wives. Does that mean I've got to get a card on Valentine's Day or I've got to pick up flowers? Does that mean I've got to pick up my dirty clothes or do the dishes from time to time? What are you telling me to do, Paul? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Once again, no questions there. Well, what did Christ do for the church? He gave Himself. He gave His own life. He hung on the cross for the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her. You go down to verse number 33, and I think I left that book at home. I thought I had every book I could find on marriage, but I guess I forgot the one. Verse number 33 of Ephesians chapter 5. There's a book that was written a few years ago, and it's called Love and Respect. I'll go ahead and confess, I've not read all the way through that one yet. But Love and Respect. And even though I've not read through it, I'm going to assume that the author pulled the title from Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33. Love and Respect. I can tell you right now, right here this morning with 100% confidence, I can describe for you the best husband in the world. Because the best husband in the world is a Christian. I can tell you the perfect wife. 
Because the perfect best wife in the world is a Christian. And as we think about our lives and we think about marriage, we learn about Christ and we learn about sacrifice. How do we know that God cares so much about marriage that He designed it to be a specific way for a specific time and He wants it to be a delight? Because Paul tells us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that in marriage we see Christ and we see sacrifice. As long as things are going according to plan and as they should be. And yes, I know we're not all perfect. We don't all do it perfectly from time to time. But the best husband in the world, the best wife in the world is a Christian. And like everything else in life, if I am trying my best to please God, don't miss the last point here, like everything else in life, if I am trying my best to please God, and I think you're here this morning because you're trying to please God. I hope that you come on Wednesday because you're trying to please God. I hope you're reading your Bible daily because you're trying to please God. But like everything else in life, if I am trying to please God, it is connected to my Christianity. We, we say it, I, I mention it sometimes, God doesn't care what cereal I eat for breakfast. He doesn't care what shoes I put on. He doesn't care what's on my television at night. He doesn't care what kind of car I drive. He doesn't care the conversation that my wife and I have at night before we go to bed. Like everything else in life, if I am trying to be a Christian, then it is absolutely connected to my Christianity. Sure, the cereal may not be a big deal, but in everything that we do, if we consider it in light of being a Christian, then it's going to be important to us. Part of my Christianity is how I treat my spouse. And some of you are going to say this morning, and maybe those who might view this later, oh, that's great. I hear you, and it's great. But you don't know me. You don't know my spouse. You don't know the situation we are in. And, and all I can say this morning is you're right. I don't know. And unfortunately, we don't have the time this morning, as we said, to cover every situation. But what I can promise you is that God has an answer. The Bible has an answer. They say that communication, the sexual relationship, finances are some of the top answers to why marriages have trouble. It's all covered in there. It takes two people being Christians working together, but it's all covered in there. I've been taking a class, I've been fortunate to, to be taking a class online about marriage and family counseling, and we've talked about all kinds of these situations that people find themselves in and how to try to help. It's tough. It's never easy when you look someone else in the eye across the table or across the room and know that they are struggling in their marriage, but the Bible has an answer. We can talk about it. You can come and sit with me, maybe bring your spouse. We can talk about it. We can do our best to hope and pray that we have the best marriages that God wants us to have. So I ask you, what will you trust? Will you trust all of these books? And they can be helpful. You're welcome to borrow any number of them. Or will you trust the Word of God? Now, I'm going to ask you to put your Bibles away as we sometimes do and to get your psalm books out. That's also going to give me a minute to put all my books up here so I don't knock any over. I did warn Brian not to be alarmed as he came up here. There's a bunch of books in the... We didn't hide all the books that were in the library, Jerry, so don't get mad at me that we were, gonna, that were in the way there. But uh, as we think about marriage and we think about the church, I don't care what Dr. Laura or Dr. Drew, Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz... And, and I love some of those. Dr. Harley, 
We talk about his needs, her needs, Dr. Chapman, the five love languages, the class I've been in. We've talked about Dr. Gottman, the seven principles to have a happy marriage. I, I do like those. I've been working through them. They're great in some ways, but I don't care what they have to say. All I care is about what, what is God has to say about marriage, about family, and about the home. And so as we conclude this lesson, the great thing about the Bible is it doesn't stop there either. Because not only do we learn what we need to know about the home, we know that God has told us exactly what to do about salvation as well. We put the slide up here on the screen from time to time and we ask for you to think about it. We ask for you to consider your salvation. Whether or not you become gospel obedient, whether or not you've done what the Bible has to say. Because just like I don't necessarily care what Dr. Drew or Dr. Phil or whoever has to say about marriage, I don't care what they have to say about salvation either. I want to go to the Word of God. This morning, have you been baptized for the remission of your sins? It's then that you can be added to the church. We, po we post these other steps here on the screen, but you're not always at number one. Sometimes maybe you've heard the Word. Maybe you, you've even begun to believe the Word, but you need to repent of your sins or confess Jesus as Lord in order to be baptized. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to do that. Maybe you're unsure. We would gladly open the Bible with you and see what God has to say about salvation. We're thankful that He has told us just what to do about marriage and just what to do about salvation. We're thankful that not only that, but He didn't stop by just saying be baptized. He has told us how to be faithful. And not only that, He has told us exactly what to do when we mess up again. That we can repent and pray. Maybe you're here this morning and if it's of a public nature, we're thankful that one of our elders will come forward here in just a moment so that you can make it known in a public fashion so that we can pray with you and for you. That's the beautiful part of being part of a family, that we can encourage one another in prayer. We're about to sing this song to encourage you, to think about love again for just a moment, to think about the love that God showed for us and the love that Christ showed in His sacrifice. I hope that your marriage is all that it can be, and if it's not, I hope that you continue to work on it. But first and foremost, as we said a moment ago, the best husband and wife is a Christian and you need to make sure that you're right with God. And if you need to become a Christian, come back to Him or need the prayers of this congregation. We'll be singing to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.